Hello everyone, welcome to the Green Knight Podcast, episode 5. Last time we discussed the Greek myth of Narcissus, and it was an exploration of the effects of the extensions of our bodies, that is, our technology. And the effect is that it makes us numb. The Greek myth is really important because of the time frame in history. I wanted to make sure my listeners know that I understand that humanity has been on this planet for a long time and has had many ups and downs over many thousands of years. I know that there was a fall of men and we had to start again from scratch. Much of what I have been discussing in this podcast thus far is about what has happened since that reset. We can become aware of the effects of our technology by looking at the past. Awareness of the past can aid us to recover from our trance and become active in creating a positive future. I will also eventually take a deeper look into the past than Marshall McLuhan has done, I think. He basically starts with the invention of the phonetic alphabet and the effects that that has had on society, how that technology has had an effect on our psyche and the way we see ourselves. In my explanation, which I ar arrive at through the lens of McLuhan, is that the value of technology, the value well that technology creates, attracts people and motivates them to organize on larger scales. And this was first begun when we made the first stone tool. Stone tools are an extension of our hands. In this episode, episode 5 of Green Knight, I want to discuss, discuss McLuhan and his analysis of the phonetic alphabet and what it did to the tribal mind. If there's a little bit of irony in this episode, it is because I'm talking about tribalism as we see it today, which is this division between groups and ideologies. Tribalism, the pre-phonetic alphabet type, is the opposite of division and an actual integral existence for the individual inside the group. The phonetic alphabet actually served to create the perception of individualism by forcing the reader of words into an isolated and encapsulated position. This can be understood in thinking about audible communication or word of mouth. In tribal society, this includes everyone who is within earshot. With the invention of the written word or the phonetic alphabet, we have sounds that used to be spoken now being heard inside one's own mind, and so it is pretty clear that, an isolate, that it's an isolating experience. I want to talk about tribalism as it is today with this in mind, with uh, Marshall's analysis of the effects of the phonetic alphabet. But we will move on to discuss the divisions that we are experiencing in society. Currently, as an example, I will finally get to discussing the neo-rationalist neuroscientist that is an influential writer and speaker. 
So getting right into the phonetic alphabet, I will reference McLuhan with some quotes from the book Understanding Media, in which he talks about another Greek myth that discusses words as dragon's teeth. In this, we will find that the primary effect of the phonetic alphabet, as we have already said, is isolation, or the discovery of individualism. But with that also comes uh, a proto-nationalism and group identification and thereby division that leads invariably and inevitably to war. One thing of note that is very interesting is that in Greek myth we have Hermes. And it is said, it is written, that it is Hermes who delivered the Greek alphabet to humanity. Hermes also goes by other names in other older cultures. And specifically, we have him as Thoth, T-H-O-T-H, the author of the Emerald Tablets, and the Egyptian god. In Roman culture, Hermes was renamed as Mercury. So in astro astrology, those of you who have studied any astrology know that Mercury is the planet of verbal and written expression, which is where we get the word mercurial. I love all of the connections that can be made through linguistics. In fact, language can point the way to a great many things if we use apophatic apophatic analysis in the study of language. We can determine more truths than what is on the face of words that we use today without thinking. Apophatic meaning what something is not. If we can determine what something is not, then what is left is what it is. So Thoth gave humanity the written word, and over time it would lead us back to the possible evolution of hum humanity and human society. Lead us back to an integral and harmonious existence with each other and our surroundings. It has taken 10,000 years for us to get to this point. <laughs> the interesting thing is that nature natural law has been elevating us through our technology. Now we'll get into this later. The effect is by default, despite its apparent destructiveness and for the propensity for society to become stratified and ruled by a controlling elite. I'm going to take this moment right now to reiterate that the tendency to want to control reality as opposed to operating by natural law is a symptom of our technology. I was alluding to this last time in that because of our technology, the success of it, the value it creates, we think that we can in fact control everything. But that is not the path. Because 
With that, we will find that nature will restore balance and destroy what we were building. There is a way to benefit from our technology and not create unstable structures. I think I've used this term natural law for the first time in this podcast, but it won't be the last. Another way to say it is cosmic law. It is the law derived from the events that brought about the origin of the universe. I want to make sure right now that you all understand that natural law is not perhaps what it invokes in the mind when you hear those two words, which might be something more akin to the law of the jungle or survival of the fittest. Natural law is not the law of the jungle. Natural law is the way in which the universe has taken form since its inception, the rules by which it grows and expands and becomes more complex. These rules are few, but lead to complexity. One very important outcome of these rules is balance. Everything is in balance. Everything, if thrown out or skewed, then will return to balance. It's actually fundamental to the content of this podcast, and it takes a bit more, really, to start to understand it. That is, if you haven't studied it already. Some of you may have. Others of you probably have never heard of it. Or if you have just written it off for some reason or another, or because of an analysis of it by some modern viewpoint or philosophy. Also, this, whether you have studied natural law or not, this progression that I am putting together will make natural law visible and cognizable for everyone. In modern society, it is generally looked upon that one bit of knowledge or philosophy cannot be the sole route to a general solution for the issues we face as human beings. A term that is used for that is reductionist. However, pattern recognition shows a starting point, and it's not just a linear progression. Linear causality is not provable. So, if we can recognize the pattern, then we can also see the origin point and the subsequent reiterations of the same interactions that led to this particular point in time. Very similar to the cosmology or the origin of the universe that is described with sacred geometry in hermetic knowledge. Incidentally, this description of the beginning of this dimensional space that we find ourselves existing in, this hermetic description matches or can be made to fit with the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe. It is similar in that even in a lack of understanding of how the Big Bang came to be in the first place, science seems to just kind of gloss over that and say it exists so we can look back in time by looking out in space. We know that it appears to all of our senses and instruments to be expanding. The universe appears to be expanding, which gives us ways to measure it. 
the understanding of the first particles and the beginning of the radiation of light is generally described by current scientific theory. The forces that begin to show themselves over time are the result of previous interactions and of the earliest interactions after the beginning. This so-called explosion. It can be said that it's the same type of thing being described by hermetic knowledge of the origin of all things in that it starts with the initial conditions and keeps iterating upon itself becoming more complex and expanding over time. Hermetic knowledge is based upon geometry, sacred geometry. The symbols that the ancients used to describe the origin and growth of the physical reality present themselves in modern science. The measurement of the physical world yields over and over the presence of these recurring patterns. These patterns present themselves in our surroundings, in the natural world, and so it makes sense that they would also present in the growth and development of human society and humanity in general. So as opposed to making the declaration that certain knowledge is elemental to arriving at a solution for humanity, which could be construed as reductionist, it is more that knowledge of origins provides an understanding that the mechanisms of change can be recognized. Marshall McLuhan's analysis of the effects of technology on the mind of man takes these origins into account because an effect is an event occurring at a time and place. It has a beginning. Additionally, the idea that the effect of technology is non-negotiable is congruent with natural law. This is why it is important, because the laws of nature are immutable, and perhaps it is natural law that is at work on us through our technology. Think about that. In all of our efforts to control, it's still working on us. It's still bringing us closer to a possible return. This is the purpose of this podcast. In addition to show a path, to give at least an option for us to take, whether or not it is heard, I will have at least recorded it. The purpose of this show is to say that we have everything we need to return to balance. All that needs to be done is to create nodes in the network that provide real value. It is hermetic knowledge, and there again we have the name Hermes coming into it. This is the hidden knowledge, you guys, hermetic knowledge, or the teachings of the mystery schools. This knowledge has been preserved, but also hidden and used. This knowledge should be taught, widely distributed, and understood by all. Its purpose was that, after the great cataclysm that brought about the fall of man, the flood, as it were, its purpose, this knowledge, was to be used to elevate humanity to its pre-catastrophe state. 
This knowledge was hidden at first because of its power and the potential to be misused. But despite its occultation, the schools that taught it were over time infiltrated by those that would use this knowledge for control as opposed to educate and elevate. It is a tricky subject because the mystery schools and hermetic knowledge and what we can really call spiritual alchemy has been maligned over the centuries because some real fucking assholes have been using it to dominate us. That's just a primer on the nature of the universe and the nature of our human existence. It is available for us to become all that we can be if we can all achieve this higher state. What perhaps people mean when they say that if you want to make the world better, then first look inside yourself. But to know oneself is to know that we are not free. To know oneself is the true red pill. I think currently there's a lot of people saying that they've taken the red pill. But I think no matter whether you've come to that realization or not, there's degrees to the analogy that the red pill represents. There are red pill degrees. And if you are a blue piller, meaning you don't even know what I'm talking about, then if you do truly look inside yourself, because that's what hermetic knowledge teaches, you really is to go inside you have access to everything the whole of everything the all as it were if you are currently on the blue pill meaning that you are unaware that humanity is in serious danger of being trapped then if you actually come to know yourself and right now i want to say that i have not completed that process i'm not saying i have it's like what I was saying about the degrees of the red pill. Um, I'm definitely red-pilled, but I think I have a lot of work to do. I'm not even close. But if you do come to know yourself, then you will be able to see through. Information is interesting. And it seems that if one is inspired to share, then one should go ahead and do it. And that's what I'm doing. And it's not about any hubris. You know, I say this, but I am keenly aware that my ego wants to get involved. I've been struggling with this. But getting back to the idea that I'm discussing... It's not reductionist to understand key relationships that are backed up on so many levels. It's hard to point them all out and put it all together in one image. This knowledge basically is showing how because of what it means to be human starts with this basic setup. This basic setup operates in congruence with the rest of creation because it's part of creation. So this knowledge can be key to understanding how things develop in relation to each other and over time. Seeing that, being able to see that, allows you to look at our current situation with a new set of eyes. And again, 
I have chosen McLuhan because he understood that these effects of technology are non-negotiable. Meaning, they just happen and it seems to be pointing us towards something. Just the way the universe has developed over time, it is going towards something and we are a part of that. Our development, humanity's development, mirrors the development of the universe. It does not stop evol evolving. The pattern that is shown by looking at what we know of the history of humankind, what we can intelligently extrapolate, and of course, from looking at our most recent recorded history, the pattern that is shown is a march towards a return to balance. Last time I read a quote from Understanding Media by McLuhan, and it went something like this, quote, Failure in the perception occurs precisely in giving attention. Let me start again. Quote, Failure in perception occurs precisely in giving attention to the program content of our media while ignoring the form, whether it be radio or print or the English language itself, unquote. This is the whole quote. I think last time I truncated it. I intended the quote to invoke an image of the form of the internet, internet, which is all of us, our information processing apparatus, all connected, the extension of our nervous system. But also, I was, in the last part, in the last paragraph of the last show, I was talking about the program content and how it grabs our attention because as it caresses, it also throttles our emotions. And in this quote, you'll notice that one of the forms of media he mentions is language. The effect of the medium is content independent. The effect of our technology is to put us into a state of num numbness despite the content. To emerge from the collective state of shock induced by the amputation of our senses and the proxy functioning of them via technology we must first realize the effect. And second, be aware that content will divert our attention enough to prevent an awakening from the trance. The collective trance state can be perpetuated through the use of content or storytelling, a narrative. Remember that last time in the discussion of the myth of Narcissus, we discovered that technology as an extension of our bodies and of our senses hijacks and in effect amputates the parts of our bodies that are extended by our technology. In the case of the internet, it is our nervous system that has been extended. To acknowledge this allows one to reel in their nerves and make them impervious to the outrageous fortune of extreme narrative. To take notice of the form of the language that it used in program, program content or storytelling. To take notice of the form of the language and the pattern that unfolds. While we give attention to the content without an attempted wide viewpoint and pattern recognition, then truly we are ignoring the form of the medium. Language 
is the lamp by which the shadows are cast in Plato's cave. Language is the extension of the human faculty of thought, extended thought. Language has the pattern or structure of the human psyche and its library of archetypal forms. I had mentioned previously and alluded to the idea put forth by, by McLuhan that the invention of the phonetic alphabet was a critical break barrier in history. The phonetic alphabet disconnected Western men from a solely audible information exchange by representing language in a new form, a written language that can be read or decoded with sight, not hearing, made it possible to store and or deliver the contents of one's mind in a mono filament nodal bridge, one mind to another, not one mind to the tribe. But the decoding process, the act of doing it, acts on us. The use of eyesight as opposed to the ear in receiving a message places the playback of the information inside an individual, not as in the case of speaking for everyone else to hear. The phonetic alphabet is a linear assembly of individual letters that represent sounds. It is an assembly line in the mind. Quote, the development of writing and the visual organization of life made possible the discovery of individualism. Unquote. This use of the mind in this way had an effect on decisions. The pattern resulting extended to all aspects of human life, a rational proximity, a relational proximity playback, a compartmental sequencing of the social structure. This was the result of the alphabet. Speech being converted to writing caused a cascading effect throughout society. Quote, There is the further circumstance that, during his more than 2,000 years of literacy, Western man has done little to study or to understand the effects of the phonetic alphabet in creating many of his basic patterns of culture. To begin now to, to examine the question may therefore seem too late. <coughs> Unquote. Quote. Only alphabetic cultures have ever mastered connected linear sequences as pervasive forms of psychic and social organization. The breaking up of every kind of experience into uniform units in order to produce faster action and change of form, applied knowledge in parentheses, has been the secret weapon of Western power over man and nature alike." Unquote. Applied knowledge is another way to say technology, technical human extension, or all of the forms of media. The physical output of human understanding is applied knowledge, linear sequences of forms. Language is perhaps our oldest art form. While being a sequence of sounds blended together, it also provides access to the archetypal forms of the human psyche collected over millennia and stored in the collective unconscious. <coughs> These forms show up in myth, in epic poems. Epic poems were the mass communication, 
of a distant age. They had the effect, they had the effect of identity building to those who heard it. This is how we get, perhaps, the ironic effect that the discovery of individuality had on society. The recognition of individuality asked the question, Who am I? Who am I? I'm a member of a group. I'm a member of a group of people with a story. The standardization of identity is created through language. Standard identity implies a quantity of people who are sim similar, a singular group. Quote, the phonetic alphabet alone is the technology that has been the means of creating civilized man. The separate individuals equal before a written code of law. I'm going to go through a few more quotes about from the book about this section about the phonetic alphabet. Quote, The power of letters as agents of aggressive order and precision should be expressed as extensions of the dragon's teeth is natural and fitting. Letters are not only like teeth visually, but their power to put teeth into the business of empire building is manifest in our Western history. Unquote. Quote, that this is the reason why our Western industrial programs have quite involuntarily been so militant and our military programs have been so industrial. Both are shaped by the alphabet and their technique of transformation and control by making all situations uniform and continuous. This procedure manifest in the Greco-Roman phase became more intense with the uniformity and repeatability of the Gutenberg development. So the Gutenberg development, he's talking about the printing press. Um, so why is it that words caused the creation? Um, why is it that words uh, facilitated war? And one is uh, letters on paper can be delivered over roads to distant garrison to carry out military action. The idea that the invention of the written word gave rise to the creation and maintenance of large armies points to the importance of understanding how this came to be. It is less the content of the medium than the form imposed by it. Individuality cannot exist without meaning. Archetypal form provides positioning and context and belonging. Inside the content, these archetypal forms provide a scaffolding that the content rests on. The content is irrelevant to the viewer in so much as any content can be affixed to the skeletal form, the form of the human psyche. Previous to the written word, there was no thought of uniformity because wholeness does not require an accounting of its parts. There is only the one part, but after the alphabet, being part of the whole requires a uniformity of thought.
This is why content can be so pervasive and cogently effective at consensus building. The form the story takes allows access to the individual mind. People, having been cut loose by the alphabet from the tribal auditory bonding, found connection in the content of the written word. Quote, the same separation of sight and sound and meaning that is peculiar to the phonetic alphabet also extends to its social and psychological effects. Literate man undergoes much separation of his imaginative and emotional sense life. We need to wake up from our trance, our technology-induced trance, in order that we be available to, we need to wake up from our trance, our technologically induced trance, in order that we be available to participate in the outcome of this transition to the next stage of human existence. Last time we explained the myth of Narcissus and how it had been misinterpreted, misinterpreted that he fell in love with his own image, but it was instead that he was shocked by the sudden appearance of his extension. So although it is not true that Narcissus fell in love with his own idealized image, despite that being now how we define narcissism, it is true that we are as numb as Narcissus, truly, and the myth is a metaphor for the shock of loss of wholeness when we extended ourselves outward with our technology. In essence, it was a fracturing of our being to be assembled independently, such as with the alphabet. Quote, Today, the mere mention of D.H. Lawrence will serve to recall the 20th century efforts made to bypass literate man in order to recover wholeness. Unquote. The phonetic alphabet being that it required eyes to discern meaning meant that suddenly and catastrophically communication was individualized and internalized. This, though it may not seem such a radical thing to a member of Western society having descended from nearly a thousand generations of readers, but it was for all intents and purposes an amputation of the self, of consciousness, from everything else. It could be said that all of our endeavors since, since that time have been to return, to return to connection. The response of this severance is a seeking to belong. Quote, Consciousness is regarded as the mark of a rational being, yet there is nothing linear or sequential about the total field of awareness that exists in any moment of consciousness. Consciousness is not a verbal process, yet during all our centuries of phonetic literacy we have favored the chain of inference as the mark of logic and reason. Unquote. The nature of our technology as an extension of our bodies, the effect it has on us is not a choice. By short-circuiting our perception apparatus, by short-circuiting the natural balance of our senses, it puts us in shock. And upon growing up, all of us, very simply put, are in shock as a normalized st state. This diminishes our ability to see nuance in our surroundings especially in the information environment. In this state, we are susceptible to content because the content is showing us ourselves. 
we've become transfixed by the story of us not realizing that the re reflection can be written. We become transfixed by, transfixed by the story of us like Narcissus was transfixed by the reflection that the reflection can be written. This is an inversion since one precedes the other and yet once the reflection is in play once the medium is part of the surroundings then the medium acts on the viewer who is showing us ourselves this is an interesting question we become what we behold we are the authors of our future and can write our own reflection if we choose the answer lies not in an elaborate plan, but simply providing locations for inclusive production of value. To foster the ability to recognize the forms of language that content rides on, one must first stir themselves from the trance. While we are in a trance, we are susceptible to storytelling, to the building of a narrative. In this state, we are susceptible to programming. In our perpetual seeking of belonging, we will gravitate towards what we feel and who we feel are our people. The tendency is to link up with like-minded individuals, and this can be referred to as tribal. In storytelling and advertising, of course, these groups, these tribes, can be considered markets or market segments that can be targeted with a custom message. The arrival of the written word with the destruction of the formal tribe of the spoken word gave rise to the informal tribe of identity. That is the irony. The isolation of the individual was their motivation to identify as a member of a, of a tribe or a group. This identity was a commonality defined and recorded with words. We are susceptible to archetypal characters that are representative of a tribe or a group in which we identify. I am leading up to an example of this in modern times, an example of the creation of a narrative through the positioning and interaction of influential characters or figures in our society. There are many examples of these tribal archetypes, and they are the voice of of the tribe. I want to use an example that is perhaps more subtle in appearance but highlights a relationship that is extremely relevant to the path that society is taking currently. A relationship in that we can see tribes positioningly, positioning and seemingly forming up against one another giving all appearances of a dichotomous interchange. So the example and uh, I'm going to use is about an influential podcaster and writer named Sam Harris and his interchange with one of the editors from Vox magazine, Ezra Klein. So what I'm going to show is how each of these people is representative of a certain tribe and how these tribes are in apparent disagreement and at odds with each other. 
Sam Harris is a PhD neuroscientist, so we can easily say what his tribe is. Maybe. Don't get me wrong here, because I am trained in science. I have a degree in physics. Again, I will say I have a degree in physics. Uh, I fucking love science. I say this as a disclaimer because I think a lot of people want to, uh, including Sam Harris, want to say that science is not a tribe because it is not based on beliefs. It is based on facts. I think that we can define a modern tribe as a certain set of beliefs. So although I am trained in science, I have to say that the reason I switched from paleoanthropology to physics as a major is one, because a science project I did in ninth grade that was based on catastrophe theory. And two, because I read about quantum mechanics and the idea that observation has an effect on the outcome of an experiment. Meaning that these certain experiments, the data that they measured was dependent upon the measurement tool that was being used. And basically you have to choose the measurement tool and so that means that the outcome of the experiment was dependent upon the choice of the observer. A lot of mental gymnastics has been done around this subject since it was first discovered and there's still no consensus on it. However, mainstreamers seem to be doing a pretty good job of convincing themselves that they've gotten around this observer effect problem. Basically, they just say that uh, there, isn't an, there isn't one. It's just been misinterpreted. And again, the observer effect means that objective reality really doesn't exist, that our perception actually has an effect on reality. If you talk to the smartest dudes out there, and I'm not counting Neil deGrasse Tyson, because his overconfidence on this issue is definitely a red flag, but the other guys who are more honest and perhaps more well-informed than him admittedly say that it scares them, that the observer effect scares them. I would venture to say that the reason for this is because it brings subjectivity into the realms of science. And that, one, makes it questionable. And two, uh, ventures into the area of belief as opposed to actual truth. Now, I think the observer effect is real and actual. Science is without a doubt productive and is the combined knowledge that we have accumulated to date. But to lock it down only within the bounds of measurability is to cut off a large portion of what makes up our reality. Because our reality is made up, includes things that are not measurable as we understand measurability at the moment. My ninth grade science project was in the math category because catastrophe theory is based on a type of math called topology, which brings in an extra dimension and the possibility of measuring quality as opposed to quantity. This theory was very effective at predicting rapid and catastrophic change in biological systems. A straight-up measurement of quantities cannot reliably predict sudden change.
So the measurement of quality, so to speak, is a beginning to an approach of measuring what we currently perceive as unmeasurable. I was curious as to the effect of consciousness on our reality, and quantum mechanics was the epicenter for that. Consciousness being that scary, no-go area for modern physics, it was there that I wanted to find myself. And uh, as a kind of disclaimer before I started to talk about Sam Harris, who is a neo-rationalist, I guess you could say a neo-materialist. I think that works, neo-materialist. This is his tribe. He claims to be on the side of science, and I dare say the word objectivism. That was for all you Ayn Rand fans out there. So I don't really like Sam Harris, and I haven't since I first found out about him. And that was because uh, he made the news for burning Deepak Chopra on stage in a public forum. I was thinking this guy was just a bunch of clever arguments um, all assembled and presented in a nice package. It's obvious that he is super fucking smart. If you've ever heard him speak, then you get the clue real quick. He's got a sanguine delivery and a soft touch and is able to expound for long minutes and still be followable. However, he is prone to using techniques that are good for debate in front of an audience. He is good at delivering one-liners. And he's, he has many other devices that he uses in his long soliloquies that tend to occult and divert away from the crux of an argument so as to maintain an upper hand in the eyes of the viewers. The reason I so chose Sam Harris is, uh, and I kind of explained it already, is to expose one of these false dichotomies that is set up in our media. Sam Harris is an archetype nerd that also does jujitsu and meditates. So he has this crossover effect happening in his public portrayal. It's a strange... It's strange. It's, uh, he's like a materialist, scientist, acid-taking, meditation coach hybrid. And he almost seems like a cartoon character. On the other side, we have Ezra Klein, whom I know much less about, but having listened to the interview that I reference in this example, it's obvious that he is also very smart. However, he is also a member of a tribe and by all appearances is at odds with people of Sam Harris's ilk. So I think we can call Ezra Klein's tribe a few different things, but what we will call it here is simply postmodernist. Some of you will know about the postmodernists, and so we'll also know that they are the kind of origin of the social justice movement. And so, again, as a disclaimer for myself, because I am not a member of any tribe, my words will sometimes attempt to categorize me as such. As I was saying before, how words can be associated, and you can be almost guilty by association if you use 
certain words. But again, I'm not a member of any tribe but humanity, and I want to be able to use words in order to discuss these things. There is a quote from Manly P. Hall, which I think is good to insert here. Quote, It is said that wisdom lies not in seeing things, but in seeing through things. Unquote. So the postmodernists are the origin of the social justice movement, which is good. What's wrong with treating everyone with respect, allowing them to, allowing them to keep their dig dignity and doing no harm? That's social justice. In the 80s and the 90s and perhaps even before, when I was growing up, because my parents were hippies, I started out on the left and I identified on the left. And in those days, we would speak about the freedom of speech being curtailed by the right. You know, books like Fahrenheit 451 and 1984, the kinds of speech, the kind of thought that was not allowed was the kind that promoted freedom. The right always seemed anti-freedom. That being said, you can see how I have a foot in both camps in this divide that I will describe. I like things about both sides, but there's an incongruence and inconsistency in the thinking on both sides. And when you recognize this inconsistency, you'll see that despite the apparent differences of the so-called opposition between the neo-rationalists and the postmodernists, you will see that they both are proponents of and promote a continuance of the current structure. I will attempt to make this summary of the interview as quick as possible in order to get at the part that I think is relevant. Relevant. Sam Harris interviewed the author of The Bell Curve on his podcast. And if you don't know The Bell Curve book, it created a big stir because the author was relating IQ data to race. He was documenting IQ scores and categorizing them based on race. There were only two chapters in the book about race, but it's a subject that is very divisive, and speaking about it in objective terms is tricky to say the least. Needless to say, Sam's handling of the interview came under scrutiny and attack particularly from the editor at Vox Magazine, Ezra Klein. So one of the things that has diminished Sam Harris's star a little bit since he became popular is that he seems to have a pretty thin skin when it comes to critique of his opinion um, and his interviews and his handling of guests. It appears that he gets hurt and angry and can't believe that anyone has interpreted his output in such a way. So despite his intellect, his response to critique lacks a certain quality that he has otherwise. And basically, he's a crybaby. So in Sam Harris's interview of this guy who wrote The Bell Curve, to some, he didn't appear to be outraged enough about the presentation of the data in the book, which, and this can be argued, but Jesus... Um, it basically says that white people are smarter than people of color. In the interview um, between Harris and Ezra Klein, 
after they had gone back and forth for a bit and gotten pretty underhanded with each other as far as words go, Ezra agreed to come on the show and talk about what transpired. So actually what I'm saying is, is they got nasty with each other before uh, Ezra came on the show. And then this is what happened when they came and talked about it. So it starts off where they kind of create some ground rules as far as interrupting and stuff like that. It's pretty entertaining really to hear these two guys talk because the way they lay it out, it's really good. In this case though, Sam gets his ass handed to him because he really doesn't have a leg to stand on with this subject. He wants to say that he doesn't have a positioning behind it, but he gives himself away in the end. He's trying to say that this is merely science, that this data collection on IQ is simply a documentation and that there's no moral quality to it since it's a collection of data. In addition, he says that all of the outrage over his handling of the interview from the guy who wrote The Bell Curve is identity politics. Sam and his boys on the intellectual dark web all talk about identity politics a lot. And it really is a problem because it does the thing that I was talking about where you can't even really have a conversation about anything without being branded. And this is what Sam was complaining about. Because, but because of this overuse or this weaponizing of identity politics, because this exists, it offers the opportunity that every time you say something stupid or attempt to have a conversation about a tricky subject, people get pissed. And um, so, I mean, what Sam was saying is, is that, ah, you just, this is just identity politics. And, uh, he gets to say that because it's been overused, right? It's like a safe thing to say because it has been way overused. I hope that was clear. I kind of messed that up. Anyway, Ezra Klein then counters by saying that the author of the book um, has spent his entire career in Washington being paid to influence policy with data interpretation. And the pattern that is represented there is one that is pretty much given away, gives the guy away as a racist. I mean, it's hard to look at it any other way. Sam Harris's response was basically reiteration of his previous and original point that data is objective and the complaint against him is identity politics, to which Ezra Klein says, it is possible for data collection to be collected, for data to be collected in a biased environment and that measurements can be biased in themselves, especially when the data collector has shown a previous pattern of attempting to use his data to sell a narrative. Sam was originally very upset and uh, it's uh, He put it all on his blog and everything, the whole interchange, I think. He likes to do that. 
Um, I could talk about that some more, but it's not worth it. But basically, Sam was super upset because he was thought he was being called a racist. And uh, then Ezra made it clear that he was not labeling him, but pointing out that any attempt at seeing this IQ data as objective with knowledge of the data collector's pattern of intent was a mistake. So Sam could now not be angry for, for being identified as a conservative white supremacist because Ezra had eloquently talked his way out of that. But what was he being identified as? What tribe was Sam Harris being placed in? Sam splutters once again, but this is empirical data, to which Ezra responds, that's just your tribe. And now Sam was caught. He could no longer feign indignation over being maligned as a racist, and he could not refute empiricism as a tribe, because doing so would call out his membership to that tribe. Do you see? It was kind of brilliant. You cannot claim that only measurement is proof when belief in measurement is required. Scientism is a tribe. It is the tribe that says the science is settled. But science is never settled. Science is an exercise in discovery. Old explanations get supplanted by more accurate ones. The idea that one race is superior to another is an old model. An objective assessment of intelligence becomes in irrelevant in light of new understanding. To resist new information that does not fit accepted models is to be unscientific. New understanding comes in the study of consciousness. Mainstream science maintains that awareness occurs in the brain despite evidence of the contrary. Resistance to new information that contradicts established views is unscientific and equivalent to identity politics. Scientific explanations are always overturned. That is the nature of knowledge acquisition. If science was truly an objective endeavor, then paradigm shifts would not occur. Now, The idea of non-objective reality is at the core of the postmodernist philosophy. This can be taken too far also. This can be taken beyond the pale in the belief that the truth is unknowable and that only the self is knowable. This knowing of the self in postmodernism should not be confused with the idea of turning inward to know the self from, the, from Buddhism. It is more that the self is the only thing that can be proven to exist. In postmodernism, the truth is not accessible. And so there is this kind of everyone has their own truth, their own point of view. Postmodernists say that only the self is certain and ultimate truth is unknowable. This is solipsism and promotes an atomization of society into its smallest parts. People.
the truth is knowable but is not entirely objective. We have these two opposing sides. One that wants to say that everything is measurable and the other that says nothing is. But both sides share the belief that each of us is alone in our minds. This belief promotes and perpetuates the establishment because each of us as a self-identified individual agent acts alone. This is bro system. The neo-rationalists or the neo-materialists right I call him neo-materialist because he believes that consciousness is the result of chemistry and electricity in the mind but he is also a meditator so it just how can those two things it's like it's almost like he meditates just to be more marketable you know and you see that in these archetypes they will like mix some shit into their persona to make it cross over and to me it's very transparent but we have the neo-materialists and the postmodernists, and it's just two mazes that have the same exit it's another false dichotomy the same exit that we're all trapped in our bodies <laughs> and we're all by ourselves and that we have to exist in this top-down central control system so what we have is the WWE of intellectual top demographic where are the radical thinkers to challenge these guys you know I mean Eric Weinstein is in the intellectual dark web probably one of the smartest dudes to be walking the earth right now but what the fuck man how is it that you can have these opinions and still be that smart I mean let's have a talk I think I could bring you around <laughs> so where are the ones who are pointing out that the fighting is fake me that's who I feel that uh, Harris got hit with the folding chair on this one and he came close to breaking character. He also said in another episode that he thought McLuhan was notoriously hard to read. And in another episode, or one that didn't even come to be because he got in an email fight with Noam Chomsky. I mean, Noam Chomsky? <laughs> really, bro? McLuhan and Noam Chomsky. I mean, you can't even touch these guys. I mean, if you run afoul of Noam, you know he saw through your bullshit. And if you can't understand McLuhan and claim to be an intellectual, then there's some shit that ain't right. So, on this note about IQ, we have a great quote from the book by McLuhan. Quote, It is in our IQ testing that we have produced the greatest flood of misbegotten standards. 
Unaware of our typographic cultural bias, our testers assume that uniform and continuous habits are a sign of intelligence, thus eliminating the ear man and the tactile man, unquote. This puts the whole IQ testing thing to bed. None of us should be eliminated. So changing course a little bit here, um, I want you guys to reflect on that one because the next uh, episode is going to be about, I think I'm going to return to the myth of Green Knight and Sir Gwaine because I think it's time now. Um, if you have all listened to all of the episodes, um, if you haven't, then start from one and go through because I think this whole thing will probably take about, I don't know, 20 episodes to get through to um, the objective and, and perhaps I can continue on doing some other things as well and maybe bringing on some guests. <laughs> I have a, a few guests I would like to bring on that um, are people that I know and uh, they, although we disagree, right, it would be good to have a conversation because they do some really interesting stuff. But uh, I promised some of the listeners that I would speak about the Neanderthal, so I have a little story that I'm going to tell, and it relates to that. So recently I took a DNA test uh, it was a couple years ago, and my girlfriend at the time convinced me to do it, so I did, right? <laughs> I mean, she told me to do it, so I spit in a tube, and I sent it to the lab and had my genetic history added to a database. I guess that's what you do for a girl. I'm actually fascinated by this stuff. You know, one of the theories that was new when I was in school was that the Neanderthals were assimilated by modern humans as opposed to driven to extinction. I was uh, super down with this interpretation when I started to learn it because I had always thought that Neanderthals had gotten a raw deal up to this point. I was like, this is fucking caveman racism. Archaeologists had preconceived notions of what Neanderthal were and then set about looking for the evidence to support those ideas. Subjectivity in science? Perish the thought. It turns out that the assimilation model was true and now we can find out what percentage of caveman we are. So I knew my caveman count was in the report but it is not what they put right at the top of the documents. The email uh, finally arrived and I opened it and I clicked the link and the first thing I see is 51% Irish and the world stops. In that instant, clarity sets in. I suddenly understand why, why I always root for the underdog, why I always play black in chess, why I purposely put myself at a disadvantage as a challenge and an invitation. 
now I understand why why I like the cranberries why I secretly appreciate the Lord of the Dance right then I'm excited I'm Irish I'm fucking Irish then I spin back in time starts again and I see a dash 51% Irish dash and there's another word oh no you don't I just became Irish and now you're saying that I'm fucking English too I hate the English so <laughs> I guess I'll tell you why or how my girlfriend got me to take this test so Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'll just I'll just get right to it. Uh, my, she had had a past life regression reading from a psychic, and and uh, in this past life, she um, was a hero to the Irish people, along with her husband, in that life. Together in the past they had stood up to the English and saved a bunch of Irish people. She was like, I think we are soul bonded through multiple lifetimes. We need to find out if you're Irish. So I hear this soul bonded past lives, Irish. And I was thinking, uh, Everyone knows that reincarnation is not race-specific. Apparently, though, some people say it is, but whatever. Moving on. Uh, but I had this yawning void inside of me, and I was looking for external validation. And uh, she was super hot, so I let go of my objections. And now, I am Irish. And we are on a journey together of lifetimes as a dynamic duo of justice and righteousness. Needless to say, that relationship ended. Some people say things that are like a switch. Uh, it turns us off. Often when we are presented with a word or phrases that represent ideas that do not mesh with our own belief system. We box it up and label it, but we could be missing something important. Conversely, we can have an eagerness to believe which may cause us to be led, a speaking to the choir kind of thing. In either case, we are left with our differences, bounded by our identities, our nurturing colors our outlooks. Bias rides on our identities. What we identify with carries bias against other identifications. Just the word English carries heavy connotations for the Irish. Neanderthal, the word alone invokes less than flattering imagery. I told this story in order that we place our attention on our biases our tribal identifications, our beliefs, our stories, and let them dissolve. We cannot exclude anyone. We are all one tribe, each and every one of us.
is infinitely valuable. So it turns out that most uh, Northern Europe European are 1 to 4% Neanderthal. Well, I'm 5%. So there you have it. Stay tuned next time for the report on the myth of Sir Gwain and the Green Knight. Green Knight out.